Church family, I invite you to open up in God's Word to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 29. We're going to look at verses 1 through 30 today. The title of our message is God's Faithfulness Through Discipline. God's Faithfulness Through Discipline. Genesis chapter 29. We're going to look at verses 1 through 30. I'm going to read. You follow along in God's Word. Let's enjoy the Word of God. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter, Leah, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter, Leah, to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger Before the firstborn, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Church, what do the following statements have in common? Are you ready? What do these statements have in common? 
Statement number one. Hopefully, this will teach you that our actions have consequences. Statement number two. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Statement number three. I'm doing this because I love you. Statement number four. I know this hurts now, but one day you will thank me. What all those statements have in common? They're often said in moments of discipline. In moments of discipline. How many of you heard at least one of those statements from your parents growing up? Probably all of us are at least a spinoff of one of those statements. How many of you parents have said perhaps one or all of those things to your kids? Probably all of us at some time or another if we've been disciplining our kids. Because we are imperfect, sinful, broken people. Listen, discipline ends up being a part of our lives. We make mistakes and reap the consequences. We make poor choices and we have to live with the results. We mess up and then we have to endure the mess that we created. We sin and stand in need of rebuke and correction. But discipline is more than just standing in the mess that you've made. Discipline is the intentional infliction of pain for the purpose of teaching the wrongness of an action and helping the wrongdoer not repeat that particular action. In other words, discipline is not just punishment, it's constructive punishment. It's punishment that if it's received with humility will protect that person from making that same mistake or doing that sin again. Discipline, when done appropriately at church, is, without a doubt, an act of love. And it's one of the ways God shows his great love towards his people. Our passage today, Genesis chapter 29, uh, verse 1 through verse 30, teaches us this, church, that through moments of discipline, God faithfully preserves his people. Through moments of discipline, God faithfully preserves preserves his people. At this point in the storyline of Genesis, God has created a perfect world. Humans messed it up with sin. God promised a savior and God promised that that savior was going to come through the line of Abraham. That promise got passed from Abraham to his son Isaac and from Isaac to his son Jacob. And we've seen that Jacob did not inherit this promise because of his good character, but because of God's sovereign choice. Jacob's name, you have to be reminded of this once again, means cheater. His name means deceiver, and we've seen him live out his name. He has deceived his father and cheated his brother out of the family blessing, and now he is on the run for his life because his brother wants to kill him. But we've also seen that Jacob is also on, on the run with a purpose. He needs a wife. He needs a wife, and not just any wife. He needs a wife from his extended family. And so he's been sent out by his mother and father to look for his mother's brother. So he's on a mission to find his uncle Laban to see if there's someone in the family that he can marry. In the last half of chapter 28, we saw God graciously appear to to Jacob in a dream, and he made promises to Jacob, which implied that Jacob would have a successful journey. God promised him offspring that would bring blessing to the nations. God promised to be with Jacob, and God promised to bring him back to his home. And then from chapters 29 through chapter 30, we see this journey of Jacob. We see what happens from the time he leaves uh, his home and has the dream until the time he gets back to his home, chapters 29 through chapter 30. And along the way, Jacob faces um, God's discipline. He 
He's immersed in brokenness. He endures years of hardship and he receives a permanent reminder that he must live constantly in submission to God's supremacy. And yet through the discipline and the brokenness and the hardship and the humbling reminder of his place of submission, God remains faithful to Jacob and to his promises every step of the way. I want us to look at chapters 29 through 33 over the next few weeks in four sections. So just to give you the lay of the land for a moment, section one is what I just read, uh, chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. And in this passage, Jacob gets married. I'm just giving you a, a big picture overview. Section two, chapter 29, verse 31 to chapter 30, verse 24. And in that section, Jacob has children. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Section 3 begins in chapter 30, verse 25, and goes through chapter 31, verse 55, the end of chapter 31. And in that section, we see Jacob trying to leave and finally leaving to head back to his homeland. And then section 4 is chapters 32 and 33. And in that section, Jacob has to face his brother as he enters back into his homeland. So that just kind of gives you a lay of the land as you're hopefully maybe reading ahead in Genesis. In each section, Jacob learns a lesson about God's faithfulness. And in section one, which is our text for today, God proves his faithfulness to Jacob through discipline as God turns the tables on Jacob. And yet through it all, what God is doing is he's preserving his people for salvation. Church, I want to share with you three truths from this passage, which I pray are going to lead us to appreciate. In other words, to, to be thankful, to be grateful for God's discipline in our lives as he uses the pain of discipline for our good and for his glory. Truth number one is this. God provides what we need for his will to succeed. God provides what we need for his will to succeed. We can't overlook this in this passage, God's hand of providence. The passage begins with Jacob journeying to and arriving in the land of the people of the east, is what verse 1 says. Now, throughout Genesis, and I've mentioned this, the, the, the um, direction east is used to signify the people who are separated from God's promise. We've seen people go east, people go east. Lot went east. The people at, in the, at the Tower of Babel, or they went to the east. It's, it's signifying a separation from God's blessing. Now, Jacob's extended family is in the east, so he needs to go to the east to find his wife, but he doesn't need to stay there because God's promises are glued to the land of promise. So he needs to go find a wife, and he needs to go back home. In chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, we see God give him success as he goes to look for a wife. He arrives in the land where he thinks his uncle Laban lives. Remember, there's no, there's no uh, maps on your phone. He's just he's off. And it's a pretty long way to where he has to journey. Um, and, uh, and so he's hoping he, he runs into his family somewhere. Well, all of a sudden he sees this well, right? And, and, and he thinks maybe these are the people I'm looking for. There's a well. Shepherds are gathering to water their flocks. The well had a large stone on it, which took several shepherds to move. That's important. Now, in chapter 28, we, got, we saw God show up at a, at a stone that Jacob was using as his pillow, right? The dream Jacob had. Now we see God show up at another stone, which is used to cover this well. Jacob asks the men where they're from. They're from Haran. That's good. That's where his family's from. He says, do you happen to know Laban, the son of Nahor? They do. That's good. Jacob asks the men, well, how's he doing? They say, he's well. That's good. It seems like Jacob has found himself in the right place. And now he finds himself in the right place at the right time. 
They say something next that gets Jacob really excited. They say, look, you're looking for Laban? Here comes his daughter. Oh, it's one of his children, and it's a daughter. I'm looking for a wife who's a part of my extended family. Jacob jumps into action. He basically tells the shepherds in verse 7, it's not time to bring your flocks in for today. Why don't you just take, go ahead and water them and take them back out to pasture? What's he doing? He's trying to clear the area so he can spend some time with Rachel. Well, they don't want to do that. Um, they kind of appear maybe lazy or, or whatever, and they say they can't until all the shepherds have gathered to roll the stone away. It could be that they're looking at this stone and going, not, we're not moving that until all the other shepherds are here because that thing is heavy. We're not, we're not breaking our backs today. Apparently, it's quite the feat to move. They want as many hands available as possible to move this stone. But listen, Jacob is a man on a mission. He's not just a man on a mission. He's a man who has God with him. Remember God's promise back in chapter 28. I will be with you on this journey. He has God with him. Rachel arrives with her sheep. His adrenaline starts pumping. This could be the one that he is supposed to marry. So he jumps down to that well. There with this woman standing there, he does what, what every guy tries to do, and he tries to impress her, right? He reaches down to this stone that normally takes several shepherds to move, and he reaches down, he picks it up, and he moves it out of the way. Now, I don't know if Jacob had back trouble for the rest of his life after that, but uh, I think all the other shepherds were impressed, and apparently Rachel was impressed as well. And then he goes from strong man to tender man as he weeps. And he kisses Rachel out of excitement. It's a way of greeting in those days. Why is he so pumped up and excited? Because this journey is proving to be a success. Rachel goes and he gets her, uh, she gets her father Laban, who is Jacob's uncle. He comes and hugs Jacob, kisses Jacob, and welcomes him into his home. His journey is proving to be a success. Even the way these verses are written clues us in on Jacob's success. In verse 5, we see that phrase, Laban, the son of Nahor. Nahor was Jacob's grandfather, Abraham's brother. So this is Jacob's family. Then in verse 10, we see the phrase, Laban, his mother's brother. And we don't just see it one time. We see it three times in the same verse in verse 10. It's emphasizing this is his family. He's in the right place with the right people. Then in verse 13, Jacob is described as Laban's sister's son. It's just very redundant. What's the point? It's his, it's, it's, it's his family. Even verse 14, Laban describes Jacob as my bone and my flesh. This is my family here. What's the point? The point is that Jacob's journey is a success. He's found a girl who's a part of his extended family. And even though God's not mentioned in, this, in these first 14 verses, we see in hindsight that God is responsible for Jacob's success. How did Jacob end up in the right place at the right time? When Rachel was coming, how in the world does this one man have the strength to move this stone that normally takes several shepherds to move? It's God. God is giving him everything that he needs in order for God's will to prosper in Jacob's life. And God still does that today, church. He is faithful to prepare the way for us and to give us exactly what we need at exactly the right time for his will to prosper. Church, we can trust him. You can trust God. Wherever he leads you, to do whatever he calls you to do, he will provide what you need. But there's something missing here. 
See, this is not the first time we've seen a scenario like this. I want you to think back to chapter 24. If you need to flip back there, you can. But think back to chapter 24. Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. Do you remember that? As Jacob's grandfather sending a, a servant to find a wife for Jacob's father. The servant came to a well. And there he met none other than Laban's, same Laban's, sister, Rebecca. Do you remember that? And this scene here is very similar. But what is missing is the plea for God's guidance and then thanksgiving for God's provision. The servant in chapter 24, if you'll recall, clothed his mission in prayer. And then he was very quick to worship God and give God the praise when his mission, his journey to find a wife for his servants, for his master's son proved to be a success. But in chapter 29 here, Jacob never prays. Jacob never asks God for guidance. Jacob never worships God for causing his journey to succeed. And so God is providing what Jacob needs, but church, Jacob has some lessons that he needs to learn. Jacob has some room to grow. Does it sound like you and me? Jacob may have seen God in chapter 28, standing at the top of the staircase that reached from heaven to earth, but chapter 29 reveals that God is not really at the forefront of his mind. But thankfully, God is not finished with Jacob. Church, just like God is not finished with you. It's like God is not finished with me. In fact, God is getting ready to do a work in Jacob's life that Jacob doesn't even know is coming. In his sovereignty, God is actually giving him success to set the stage for a moment of discipline. See, Jacob needs God's loving discipline in order for God's will to continue to prosper in his life in the future. And church, sometimes you and I do as well. Truth number two is this. Church, God disciplines us out of his love. God disciplines us out of his love. Everything seems to be going exactly as Jacob hoped, right? He's found his uncle. His uncle has a daughter who Jacob thinks is beautiful. It's basically love at first sight. But Jacob's uncle is, can we say it this way, a wheeler and a dealer. Can we, can we say it that way? He's a wheeler and a dealer. Laban is basically a man who is ready to make a deal, ready to make a profit at any time, at any place, any way, even if that means running over some people in the process. He views Jacob, really, in this passage, less as a nephew and more as a strong-bodied worker who can help him gain some more wealth. Hey, look at this. Not, whoo, I'm so excited I have family here. Hey, look at here. I've got a strong worker. He, he lifted that whole stone off of, the, off of that well. He's going to get some work done for me. I'm going to make some money off of this guy. That's what's going through Laban's mind. In verse 15, he basically offers to hire Jacob out. Jacob agrees, and he says, well, here's what I want in return. I want Rachel, and I'll work for you for seven years. Now, that might seem a bit excessive, but it was customary in those days for the groom to pay a bride price for the bride. Now, when Abraham, so go back to chapter 24, when Abraham's servant showed up many years earlier to get a wife for Isaac, Abraham sent him with all kinds of gifts. I mean, he had multiple camels loaded down with gifts to give to Laban, and Laban gladly took those gifts in exchange for his sister, Rebekah. But now, years later, when Jacob shows up wanting to marry Laban's daughter, Jacob didn't have anything. He's broke. He's on a run. He's running for his life. He doesn't have any gifts. And Laban's not going to give up his daughter for nothing. Remember, he likes his stuff. He likes his money. 
And so Jacob, uh, uh, Jacob offers to work for seven years, and Laban agrees. But we're given some additional and important information there um, in verse 15 and following. Rachel is actually the younger of two sisters. She has an older sister named Leah, right? The text tells us that Leah's eyes were weak, but that Rachel's form was beautiful. Basically, Rachel had the good looks of the two. And Jacob noticed that. Jacob was head over heels for her. The seven years of labor, the text tells us, seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Sounds like a beautiful love story, right? I mean, it's a, can I say this? It's a Hallmark movie in the making. Except it can't be because they all have happy endings. And at least in the short run, this beautiful love story takes a turn. Something happens that helps us know that the tables are getting turned and they're getting turned on none other than Jacob. Already in verses 15 through 20, the word serve we see is used three times to refer to Jacob serving someone else, in this case Laban. And then in verses 21 through 30, that word serve is used four more times, all seven times in reference to Jacob. Jacob is the one doing the serving. Now, do you remember what God said when Jacob was born? He said that the younger, who was Jacob, would be served by the older. You remember that? The younger would rule over the older. Jacob is supposed to be ruling, but all of a sudden we see Jacob put in the position of servant. Seven times in these verses we are told that Jacob is serving. What's going on? God is turning the tables on Jacob. Why? In order to discipline him. But... The discipline is getting ready to sting really bad. Jacob finishes his seven years of service to Laban and then demands that he give him Rachel so he can consummate the marriage. Now, it was customary to throw a week-long party to celebrate a wedding. So Laban gathers all the people and throws the feast. But he's got a trick up his sleeve. The first evening of the party, he gives his daughter to Jacob. Now, his daughter is wearing the customary veil, so Jacob can't see her. Plus, it's dark, which adds to the inability for Jacob to see. Finally, after seven years of work, Jacob gets to become one flesh with the one that he loves so much. But then he wakes up the next morning. And he looks beside him. And that's not Rachel. That's Rachel's older sister. That's Leah. Laban had given the older daughter to Jacob instead of the younger daughter. In a moment, just like that, Jacob's world for the past seven years just really came crashing down. We've got to kind of live in his emotions for just a moment. Can you imagine the disappointment? Can you imagine the pain? Now, one question, and I'll try to get this out of the way, that might arise is how in the world did he not know, right? How did he not know? Well, avail which was thick in those days, darkness, but then we're still left. That, that's not enough. We gotta, it's got to be another reason. The text doesn't tell us exactly, but remember there was a feast. A party was thrown. What did Laban probably serve at that party? Plenty of wine. As was customary, but also probably a part of his scheme. Jacob probably went to bed either a little or possibly very much inebriated. And that also led to the fact that he didn't know what had happened until he woke up the next morning. But whatever way it happened, it happened. 
Jacob married Leah instead of Rachel. Laban had tricked Jacob. But church, I think there's more going on here than just a sinister father-in-law tricking his gullible and possibly drunk son-in-law. I believe God is at work because God is always at work in the lives of his people. And Jacob belongs to God. God has chosen him. We've seen that. What is God doing? God is disciplining Jacob. In his sovereignty, God allows Jacob to fall prey to the scheming trickery of Laban in a way that provides Jacob with a taste of his own medicine. Remember, Jacob's name means he cheats. And Jacob had lived up to his name with his brother and his father. But now the cheater gets cheated. The deceiver gets deceived. The trickster gets tricked. The details here demand a comparison between Laban's treatment of Jacob and Jacob's treatment of his father and his brother. In verse 26 of chapter 29, Jacob is feeling the pain of being deceived, just like Esau felt the pain of being deceived back in chapter 27. In verse 27 of chapter 29, Laban's response that he said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Those words have, would, have, would have stung Jacob. Why? The younger and the firstborn. Because it would have reminded Jacob of how he, the younger, had treated his older brother, the firstborn. And then the whole scene of trickery takes us right back to Jacob's trickery. Remember, Jacob being deceived at night when he couldn't see by the secret switching of two siblings would have definitely reminded him of when he deceived his blind father by secretly switching places with none other than his sibling. Friends, God is at work here. God has sovereignly orchestrated these events to teach Jacob a lesson. He used Laban's wheeling and dealing and trickery to discipline his chosen one, Jacob. It's a moment of discipline. Jacob is experiencing the principle that Paul wrote about to the church at Galatia when he said, Do not be deceived, Paul wrote. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Jacob was experiencing the pain of this truth. Perhaps you've experienced that pain as well. But here's the good news, church. Not only is Jacob experiencing the pain of reaping what you sow, he's experiencing the pain of God's discipline. You say, well, how in the world is that good news? Discipline. Well, that means that he's experiencing the love of his God who is providing that discipline. You say, well, how is this loving? How is it loving what what has happened? It's discipline. The table's being turned in Jacob's life. How is God loving Jacob in this moment? Let me give you two reasons. One, and it's going to take some time in Jacob's life. We don't see it in this passage today. It's going to take a few more chapters for us to get there. But we're going to see a very different Jacob leave Laban's house 20 years later than the Jacob that arrived looking for a wife. And the change is for the better. Jacob is going to emerge more aware of God's presence and character and his own unworthiness to be loved by God. Remember, Jacob's not talking to God anywhere in this passage. When he leaves, we're going to see him talking to God. 
It changes Jacob for the good. And then reason number two, God's discipline is not a removal of God's faithfulness. God's discipline actually becomes a part of God proving his faithfulness to his plan of blessing and salvation. Yes, it may hurt, but it's for Jacob's good. But God hasn't stopped loving Jacob as he disciplines him. God's discipline is actually an act of love. And church, whether it's Jacob or it's you or it's me, God's discipline in our lives is always an act of love. It's always a part of his bigger plan for our lives, his plan of salvation. What is this plan? What's God's plan in the discipline? Ultimately, God's plan is for his people to gain the salvation that he's promised them. His plan is to preserve them for salvation, to keep them as his children, to not let them wander off, but to bring them back under his loving protection. And that's what his plan was for Jacob. That's what his plan is for us. Truth number three, church, is this. God uses discipline to, to preserve us for salvation. God uses discipline. So what is the purpose of the discipline in our lives? God uses it to preserve us for what? For salvation, the salvation that he's provided us with. Now, what I want us to do with this last truth, we basically finished this passage, but what I want us to do with this last truth is take a sneak peek at the next passage. Can we do that? Just take a sneak peek. We're going to get into the details, Lord willing, next week. But, but there's something for us to note as this passage comes to a close. We've got to ask this question. What was God's goal? What was his purpose in the discipline? Was it just to make Jacob remember his sin? Was it just to make Jacob feel bad? Was it just to... Let Jacob know that God was really disappointed with his trickery with his father and brother. Was it God's way of distancing himself from Jacob, letting Jacob know, I'm not really with you anymore, Jacob? What, was it God's way of revealing that he was removing Jacob from his position as the chosen son who would carry on the promises of salvation? The answer to all of those questions is a very big no. God doesn't want Jacob just to merely remember his sin or just to feel bad for what he did. He wants Jacob to learn and to grow, to honor him better with his life. God is not distancing himself from Jacob. In fact, God shows up in a very big way in the next passage. And when he shows up, he does what is Far could be described as far from removing Jacob from his position as the chosen one who would carry on the promise of salvation. When God shows up in the next section, he actually works to complete the next step in Jacob being the chosen son who would carry on the promise of salvation. And what's the next step? Offspring. Offspring. That's what the next step is for Jacob to carry on the promises. And that's exactly what comes on the heels of God disciplining Jacob. The next section reveals that God uses the result of the discipline to, to provide Jacob with the offspring that he needs. Which, church, if you think about it, it's right where we started. God providing what we need in order to accomplish his will. And ultimately his will for his people is that they would be preserved for the salvation that God is blessing them with. But what we learn in this passage is that what we sometimes need along the way for God's will to flourish in our lives is a healthy dose of discipline from the Lord. But we need to make sure we view that discipline from God's perspective. Church family, discipline hurts. Discipline stings. It's not fun. And so in moments of discipline, we might be tempted to think that God does not love us anymore. We might be tempted to think that God is removing 
His presence from us, removing His salvation from us. But church, always remember that God's discipline in our lives is actually the opposite of that. God's discipline is God's loving way of getting us back on track in order to preserve us for salvation. It's one of the tools God uses to mold us into people that he has saved us to be. It's one of the tools he uses to help us persevere to the end in the Christian life. The sons born to Jacob in the next section become the tribes of Israel through whom Jesus, the promised Savior, would come. And Jesus would die on the cross in our place and rise from the dead so that everyone who places their faith and trust in him would receive salvation and then would be preserved for that salvation forever and ever and ever. God was not getting rid of Jacob. God was preserving Jacob for salvation and was preserving salvation for Jacob. And thankfully, church, God still disciplines his people in order to preserve us for salvation. In the letter to the Hebrews... Going to the New Testament as we close. The writer of Hebrews encourages Christians to press on in the faith. To not give up, but to keep running with endurance. To persevere to the end. He talks about throwing off the sin that weighs us down. Run in holiness. But you know, I know, that sometimes we fail to throw off the sin. Sometimes in the journey of the Christian life, we do sin. What happens then? Guess what? Right after the writer to the Hebrews tells them, hey, keep going, throw off the sin, run to the end, persevere. He tells the Christians, but God's going to do something to help you. And you know what he's going to do to help you persevere to the end? He's going to discipline you. I want to read from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. The writer says this to the Christians. I want you to listen to this in light of the story that we just read and studied about Jacob and God's discipline in his life. This is a letter written to Christians. Okay, listen to this. Consider him. So we're going to persevere to the end. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Talking about Jesus. So that when you so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And had you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. So don't sin, but he knows that we're going to sometimes. He says, have you forgotten this? And he quotes Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves and chastises who? Every son whom he rejects, no, receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as Sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. You're not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, talking about our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. In other words, maybe it was good. Sometimes it was imperfect discipline. But. He, talking about God, disciplines us for our good that we may, here's the purpose, share his holiness. You know what that means? That we may be preserved for the salvation that he has given to us. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is it leading to? The peaceful fruit of righteousness? The preservation of of our salvation. Who does God discipline, church? He disciplines those he loves. Why does he discipline us? So that we will persevere to the end. He is preserving us 
and the salvation that he has given us. Praise God, church, for his loving discipline. The question then is whether or not you belong to God so that you can receive his loving discipline. Only God's children get disciplined because only children get disciplined. God disciplines those whom he loves, his children. So the question is, are you one of his children? He can't preserve you for salvation if you have not received his gift of salvation. Friends, that's why Jesus came. That's why he died on the cross and he rose up from the dead so that you could be rescued from your sins and be counted as one of his children, adopted into God's family. And then when you are, you get the blessing of being disciplined by God so that you are preserved for salvation forever. And if you have questions about trusting in Jesus for salvation, I'd love to help answer those questions for you after the service is over. Now, if you have received salvation, church, don't complain about God's discipline. Let's give thanks for it. Let's be grateful that God loves us enough to discipline us, to get us back on track so that we will persevere to the end so that he can preserve his salvation for us. Yes, it hurts. But remember, God is preserving you so that you can enjoy the benefits of salvation for all of eternity. Church, through moments of discipline, God faithfully preserves his people. Praise to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your discipline. Lord, it's easy to say thank you for Jesus. It's easy to say thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace in our lives. But Father, sometimes your love and your mercy and your grace looks like discipline. Father, help us to be grateful for that. Help us to pray for your discipline. Father, that when we get off track, Lord, that you would sting us a little. Or maybe a lot, whatever it takes. And then help us to respond appropriately to that discipline. Being humbled by it. Giving thanks that you are working to preserve us for salvation. And then help us to learn from it. Just as we will see in future chapters that Jacob does. He learns from your discipline. Father, help us to learn from it. But God, we know that the only way we can receive your discipline is if we're your children. And so as we consider your discipline in our lives, Lord, it's also a reminder of how you have blessed us so much by sending your son Jesus so that we could be adopted as your children and enjoy you preserving us for all of eternity. Father, I pray that this passage would lead us to worship you, to say thank you for how you work in our lives, even when the way that you work hurts some. Lord, remind us that it's for our good and it's for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.